right, good, good. How's everybody doing? You guys are good in person here, all right? We're glad that you're here. Those of you in the flesh are doing all right. Uh, those of you live stream, you're doing all right? Give us a digital, digital bump, bump. All right, good. Uh, so we're uh, exciting, exciting stuff going on today. We're starting a new study series, um, and uh, we'll see where this goes, how long this goes. This may turn out to be um, a series that we can come back to with different installments over time. We have a few installments in mind uh, right away, but who knows? It may be something we can come, we can come back to. Um, here's kind of the setup for, for this uh, study series. Um, there are some ideas, some beliefs, um, some that are widely held beliefs that are kind of just out there in the ether. Um, maybe held by friends of ours, family members, maybe even held to a greater or lesser degree by some of us who are here. Um, and the question becomes, though, are these beliefs really true, right? Like they could be a widely held belief, but are they really, really true? So what we're going to do in this series is we're going we're gonna to talk about some groupthink uh, that I'm going to uh, maintain that is actually uh, group self-sabotage, <laughs> uh, some, some really bad ideas that are actually uh, commonly held. And so we're going to talk about some fake news, right? Like it's election season, so we thought that'd be a fun title for this series. We could have called it anything, uh, but we're calling this series um, Fake News. And so we're going to be doing this week by week, different installments of this uh, series. Now, most of the bad news, the bad ideas um, that we'll be talking about will be from within the Christian church, but, but not all of them. Um, and so the goal here is to cover some of these bad ideas, some of this fake news um, that, you know, perhaps impacts ourselves, us ourselves, but also a secondary goal of this, this study series actually is um, to give you some tools, some talking points, some equipment that you can use to speak with uh, family members, friends, or so on who may be impacted by some of these commonly held uh, but bad ideas. And so, study series, fake news. Here's our kind of a headline passage for this study. This is from the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to this. He says, Indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now listen to what he says. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And what I want you to notice here is here Paul names explicitly, explicitly what he calls um, arguments. He says we destroy arguments and proud ideas. He's talking about arguments, ideas, beliefs, as I've said widely held beliefs, some groupthink. He's talking about some fake news. There's some fake news out there, some arguments, some proud ideas, and Paul says, listen to how he's doing. He is defining his ministry as destroying fake news, destroying these arguments and these proud ideas that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And I want to suggest a nuance there, um, the knowledge of God. He, I think he's not so much talking about arguments that, that set themselves up against knowing about God, but rather Paul's interest, as always, um, is arguments, uh, proud ideas that represent blockades from not knowing about God, but from actually knowing God. Arguments, ideas, fake news that prohibit both folks in his contemporary culture, and I'm going to argue even clear through to today, bad ideas that actually prohibit people not so much from knowing about God, but from actually knowing God, from from knowing God in a personal, intimate kind of way. So, you, you, so what I'm saying is you've heard this verse in all likelihood, or you've, or you've likely heard about the theme of spiritual warfare, and this is a common verse in that conversation. Uh, and I want to say yes, 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 yes. And also, Paul is actually, he's actually outlining here for us what we might call a form of intellectual warfare. He said, hey, wait a minute, we got to think about some stuff. We got to think about some of these arguments, some of these proud ideas that are representing obstacles that are blockading people from actually knowing God. And so Paul wants to tackle some of these arguments. He's presenting himself as 
the arguer in chief. I'm going to argue with the arguments, he's saying, which is really fascinating. Uh, we were talking earlier, I've, I've recently become a fan of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, former chief rabbi of, for uh, Great Britain. He's a great writer, prolific writer. Uh, and so I enjoy his writings. And um, in one of his riffs, uh, he actually describes Judaism as a religion of, of argument. It's a religion of argumentation. He says, think about it. Abraham emerges on the scene, and what does he do? He argues with God. Uh, and then later, in the, of course, in the uh, Jewish sacred texts, which are also part of the Christian sacred texts, uh, we find Job. What's Job doing? Well, in a manner of speaking, he's arguing with God. He's at least dissenting from, you know, with, uh, against God. And on and on you could go and develop that theme even further, right? You could even see how the author of Ecclesiastes is arguing with the sages of Proverbs, right? The sages of Proverbs say, if you do everything right, if you, do, if you walk in wisdom, everything's going to go great with you. And then along comes the writer of Ecclesiastes and says, wait a minute, <laughs> it's also possible you can do everything right and still your life fall apart, right? So there's, there's even dialogue and debate there. Um, and then in a way you could say the, the Jewish prophets come along and here and there they poke at the, the priestly class found representative in the Pentateuch and then... In Jewish history, the Talmud argues uh, with the Torah. And then uh, Rabbi Sachs says that the contemporary rabbis will argue with anybody who will engage them. Uh, so again and again and again, we find that Judaism is a religion uh, of arguments. And so I said all that to say, you know, you think about that and you think about what Paul is saying here. And, and, and it's just, I think it's important here for just this moment to appreciate Paul as a Jewish thinker. He's saying, wait a minute, I want to engage. I want to engage this culture. He's speaking out of his Jewishness and saying, we're going to engage some of these arguments. And he's positioning himself as the, uh, the ultimate winner in this uh, warfare of arguments. And so uh, we're going to talk about some fake news and, and uh, do a few installments of this study series. And so today's fake news is this. God is male. It's fake news. And here's the problem with this thought. And this is really where we're going to spend our time. Um, this, this bad idea actually has like a domino effect. It's, it's, it's not just that this is a bad idea that doesn't hold up to scrutiny, which we're going to see momentarily. But, but this bad idea actually has catastrophic, disastrous, uh, spillover domino effects because this bad idea leads to secondary uh, ideas and assumptions and claims that have turned out to be historically catastrophic and disastrous. I want to give you a couple couple examples and again this isn't to pick on anyone and I'm going to try to as we go I'm going to try to be as fair as I can um, but I just want to kind of give you a survey of what you already know. Um, from history, and, and most, I think all of these examples are actually from church history. Um, here's a quote from Augustine, who is one of the theological giants of the church. You, you may not have ever heard the name of Augustine or Augustine. We could actually debate how you're supposed to pronounce his name. Uh, not that that matters, but people do that. Um, uh, you have been influenced by Augustine, even if you've never heard his name. He's that influential in the history of the church. He is a watershed, giant, influential theological thinker. Um, here's a snippet from Augustine's writing. We're talking 4th, 5th centuries. Uh, the woman together with her own husband is the image of God so that this whole substance may be one image, the woman plus the husband. But when she is referred separately to her quality of helpmeet, which regards the woman herself alone, get this, then she is not the image of God. And so for Augustine, uh, the man is created in the image of God. He and he alone in isolation is in the image of God. The woman alone uh, is not in the image of God. Only when she is together with her husband does that whole substance, that whole uh, twofold collective become the image of God. Everybody, this is devastating. This is devastating. Here's one from Martin Luther, um, the Protestant Reformation. For as the sun is more glorious than the moon. Wow, we're, we're in grandiose terms now. As the sun is more glorious than the moon, though the moon uh, is a most glorious body, so woman, though she was a most beautiful work of God, 
yet she did not equal the glory of the male creature. I know, I know. Can we just get a boo? I mean, come on. It's not that we don't appreciate other things about you, Martin, but that, you missed it there, brother. All right. Um, and then there's some more contemporary ones. And, you know, this. there's a whole lot of this stuff. But recently, a contemporary American Christian leader um, has said that God has made Christianity to have a masculine feel. <laughs> like, what the heck does that even mean? Uh, he created, he ordained for the church uh, a masculine ministry. I mean, this is, I don't know. Um, anyway, so there's other um, examples like that. And those are, those are specific ones. But let me just kind of point out some, some general ones. When I talk about the domino effect or the cascading effect, when you begin with this fake news that God is male, uh, we can talk also in, in general terms. Um, and here's a potential uh, domino effect that could come from that, that if the starting point is God is male, therefore God is like other males I've known which because of our broken human experience implies potentially abusive, uncaring, authoritarian, absent perhaps, prone to outbursts of anger perhaps, right? So there's, there's a danger point there. Um, or how about this one? God is, God is male and therefore feminine characteristics, and, and here we have to be careful and I'm going to say, you know, characteristics which are generally stereotypically considered feminine not trying to box anybody in um but so god is male therefore feminine characteristics are less godlike than masculine characteristics you see that you see how that can be like an unspoken like thought domino that comes if if the starting point is that um if the starting point is that god is male like if that's what kind of runs through like a like a like a thought meme then then a very natural carryover to that as a starting point would be well then masculine characteristics characteristics that we typically associate with masculinity are more godlike and characteristics that we typically associate with femininity would be then therefore less godlike this is very very problematic um and here's a third one and this is more subtle but i think uh real nonetheless um god is male and therefore my need for, and, you know, go with me here on this, but God is male and therefore my need for a feminine spiritual connection is going to have to be met by some other way, some other means, right? Like, 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 and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that we all have a need for uh, what is, again, stereotypically considered a feminine connection that that nurturing kind of connection. And if, we, and, if, and if our starting point is the fake news that God is male, then we're going to be relegated to say, okay, then my, my deep, very human, very legitimate need for a feminine spiritual connection uh, is going to have to be met through some other means. Uh, and so you get things like, I don't know how far that might go, Mother Earth. Um, I've even heard it cogently uh, presented that perhaps in the early tradition of the church and still maintained in the catholic church and the or in the orthodox church that perhaps this is the origin of uh mariology that perhaps um the affection toward mary is evidence of the innate human need for a feminine connection and since the the dominant prevailing um, ideology was that god is male so there was this unconscious but natural expression among Christian worshipers, the need for feminine spiritual connection, and hence perhaps that's where Mariology came from. I don't know. Um, but these are, these are problematic um, ideas that spill over from this sort of root, fundamental, foundational fake news, the idea that God is male. It's out there. It's out there today. It's been out there uh, throughout the ages. But the question is, does this claim hold up against scrutiny? Clearly, many Christians have claimed, assumed that God is male or maybe even that God is mostly male or some qualifier uh, like that. But is it true or is it fake news? So what we're going to do today for the kind of the, the center of this study is... Um, 
we're going to do some bouncing. I'm about to take you on a tour uh, through lots of scripture. When I say, does this hold up to scrutiny? That's what I mean. Does this idea hold up to scrutiny? Does it hold up really and truly in the light of scripture when we try our best to take scripture as a whole into account? And so if you have your Bible, get ready to do some flipping uh, or, um, or, or if you have an electronic one, uh, I want to invite you to come, uh, come on this tour with me. Um, or we have the notes that are available or we'll, we can make them available. Okay, so we got lots of ground to cover. Our starting point, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 22. Listen to this. Now that you've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. Now this is Peter, the Peter, the, now the Apostle Peter, um, writing to Christ followers. Okay. Uh, love one another deeply from the heart. Verse 23, you have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. If you're taking notes, I want to invite you to circle that word born anew or born again. Has anybody noticed how ultra feminine this image is. I mean, when the Christian life is described as being born again, you can't create a more feminine thought world than that. We're talking about having, we have been given birth by God. We are thoroughly implanted into an ultra feminine thought world with this image, are we not? He goes on, verse 24, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower uh, falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word is the good news that was announced to you. Chapter 2, verse 1, rid yourself, therefore, of all malice, of all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Listen to this, verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation. Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Hey, everybody. You get the idea? Yeah, this is the first century. There's no infamil. There's no Similac. Are you tracking? We're talking about breastfeeding. We're talking about a mother breastfeeding a newborn infant. The apostle Peter is invoking the image of breastfeeding. He's saying, see yourselves as newborn infants, craving, needing, seeking out to be fed, to be nurtured, to be comforted, to be nourished by your breastfeeding God. Come on, everybody. Think about that for a while. Now, I know that for some people, it might touch a nerve to talk about God in those terms, especially in American culture. Some folks in our culture, we like our John Wayne God image. Well, you know, thank you very much. Well, you know, no thanks on the whole breastfeeding thing. I'll take my John Wayne God. Um, but listen, we're just reading the Bible today. All I'm doing is we're just reading the Bible, all right? Um, and I know, I know, I know, I know that some people see it as a form or an expression of religious piety to defend the maleness of God. I get that. I know that. But again, we're just reading the Bible today, okay? And you don't get extra religious points for being more religious than the Bible, <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't get extra religious points for being more conservative, more religious than the Bible is. Peter says, I want you to think about God as a breastfeeding mother. Come on, everybody. Uh, let's keep going. John chapter 4, um, verse 24. Jesus says, and we're just plucking this out. Uh, Jesus says these three words. God is spirit. Okay? Now, everybody... Um, 
spirit, let's just say, spirit is without gender. That's the point of all that. God is spirit. Spirit is without gender. Genesis 1, 26 and following. Then God said, and you know the story, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. Notice how plural it is. Blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Listen, everybody, the Bible's founding story, I'm saying, I want to use the word Genesis story, it is the beginning, the Bible's origin story portrays both men and women as having been created in the image of God. This is critically important, everybody. Um, um, both men and women are, I don't, know how else, I don't know how else to say it except to say it. I mean, you, uh, 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 Cindy, you are, you are the image of God. You bear the image of God. Miss Ann, you, you bear the image of God. You are created in the image of God. Um, in solitary or in tandem, you bear the image of God. And wonderfully so, I might add. Does everybody see what's going on here? Male and female, he created them in the image of God. Now, let's take this a step further. Notice, I'm going to say what's obvious. But notice that God is the creator and therefore the source of both male and female. Both male and female emerge from the creator God. Both the masculine and the feminine emerge from the creator God. That is to say that the very best of what is feminine has its source in God. The very best of what is masculine or what's considered so. I don't want to have to keep qualifying that. I'm trying to talk in generalities, right? So the very best of femininity has its source in God. The very best of masculinity has its source in God. Does everybody see that? That's the nature of creation flows from the creator as an expression of the creator. Isn't that beautiful? All right, let's keep going. Deuteronomy 4. Um, Here's kind of another angle on this same question. Uh, since you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, this is, this, is, this is God addressing Moses. Since you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire, take care and watch yourselves closely so that you do not act corruptly by making an idol for yourself in the form of any figure. In the likeness of male or female. Check it out. So God uh, prohibits um, the Israelites from conceiving of him in any form, whether male or female. And then he goes on beyond that. Or neither the likeness of any animal that's on the earth nor the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air. In the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground. The likeness of any fish that's in the water uh, under the earth, right? So we don't worship God as a fish. We don't worship God as a bird. We don't worship God as a male. They're all in the same category. Do not make God in any image. Come on now. This is profound. I think this is important stuff. Um, Genesis 17, uh, there's there's Lots of usually this Hebrew word is translated as God Almighty or the Lord Almighty, but the Hebrew word is El Shaddai, and it appears uh, in the Old Testament uh, many, many times. And the origin of the word El Shaddai has its root word, uh, a word that means either mountains or breasts, and it is um, uh, 
Hebrew thinkers will tell you it is instructively ambivalent that when God is referred to as El Shaddai, uh, there is an intentionality in invoking both of these ideas. In other words, we could say that the idea of mountains would be considered uh, a masculine image, right? Uh, and then, of course, the idea of breast being a feminine image. And so traditionally, uh, traditionally we find both the masculine and the feminine in identifying God as El Shaddai. What about this one in, from Job? Job 38, um, God says, and part of their back and forth, God says, from whose womb did ice come forth? Who has given birth to the frost of heaven? Notice this. The image here is that God gave birth to creation. God as creator, the act of creation here is depicted as God giving birth from the womb of God. Again, this is deeply feminine imagery. I think you're getting the point by now, right? Exodus 3. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, say this to the people. I am has sent me to you. This is where, we, this is where the, when we say that God's name is I am, this is where this comes from. God's name is I am. And notice that this name is without gender. Um, God's own name for himself is that he is. In other words, God is being itself. It's not, even, it's not even really strictly proper to say that God is a being. God is being. That's the realest uh, way to say it. And so the point there is that, again, strictly speaking, the very idea of ascribing gender to God is a category mistake. It's almost like we've become captive to our metaphors when we insist on well is God male is God female is he more male than more female well that's that's not even the right category to speak that's that's assuming that our human categories prevail over all of reality makes sense so so even the whole idea of insisting some uh some gender um category upon God it's um well I don't I know that nobody says it this way but I mean it's it's um it's, it's anthrocentric. It is to put ourselves in the center of reality to even insist that God must have one gender or the other or some, you know, that's not, even the, that's not even the category. God, in reality, he is being itself. I am. I am that I am. Uh, let's go on here some more. Isaiah uh, 49, love this. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Anybody else been there? The Lord's forsaken me. The Lord's got me. forgotten me. I've been there. So God responds. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palm of my hand. Okay. Let's just think about this. Now, I'm, I'll say for me. You can say for you or not. I suspect for most of us, when we think about the love of God, and I want to be careful, but I tend to think, when we think about the love of God, we tend to more think about, what, I guess, um, uh, what in Greek is agape love. And, and, and agape love is this sacrificial, sort of rugged commitment kind of love, right? Like God as, a, as our agape love, as a as a kind of a rugged, moral, committed kind of love. And that's good and rich and wonderful and important and certainly part of, of the picture. But here, notice how God is describing his love, albeit through the prophet Isaiah. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And to which we respond as human beings, no way. <laughs> no way, Jose. I mean, my wife has six kids, man. And I'm just saying, don't mess with them. That could be hazardous to your health, right? So, so here what I want to say is, and again, these aren't exclusive categories. They're certainly overlapping. But what I want to say here is while we tend, and I'll say at me, while I tend to mostly think of God's love in that agape love kind of way, like this moral, sacrificial, rugged commitment kind of thing, what's being described here is different than that. This is that instinctive, visceral, he feels it in his bones kind of love, right? Like that instinctive 
loves that we just know like we know like we know anything like a, a mother has for the children of her womb. And here, through the prophet Isaiah, this is the way God's love is described, that this, this instinctive motherly love, deeply, again, deeply feminine imagery, obviously, it goes without saying. And then I just want to say, as an aside, this, this idea of I've engraved you on the palm of my hands, I'm thinking of how many people you see who have their names of their children as, uh, on their skin as a tattoo. <laughs> like, what is that? That's like, I love that little kid. Not that, you know, that's not, that's not, ugh, don't mess with that, you know, right? So there's that idea. All right. Um, Psalm 17, you're familiar with this. Guard me as the apple of my eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Listen, everybody. If the psalmist can imagine God as a protective mother bird, so can you. All right, let's move forward. New Testament, Jesus, Matthew 23. Listen to this. This is Jesus talking. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I've desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. Notice, Jesus is describing himself as a mother hen. That's just profound. And I know in America we love our John Wayne Jesus. I'm just saying that ain't John, Je that ain't John Wayne Jesus talking to. That's mother hen Jesus talking to. Right? So just think about that for a while. A <laughs> um, couple other observations. The Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, got to say it with a, Sound. The Hebrew word for spirit, it, it, if you, we don't have this in English, but, um, but in, in Hebrew, as in many other languages around the world, nouns have a gender, masculine, feminine, or neuter. In Hebrew, uh, the noun ruach means spirit or wind or breath, and it is a feminine noun. So, so each time, if you were a Hebrew thinker, each time you encountered in writing the spirit of God, the ruach, uh, of God, you are reading a feminine noun. It's a, it is a gendered noun, and it's, it's a feminine noun, the Spirit of God. Um, and then in Greek, uh, pneuma, the Spirit of God, the pneuma, uh, this is a neuter noun form in, uh, in Greek. Um, John 3, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Here again is this imagery of being born again, that the Christian life is described as a new birth, and we are born again by the Spirit of God. As a Christ follower, as a follower of Jesus, you have been born by the Spirit of God. Many references to this, of course, in the New Testament. John 1 uh, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God. Speaking of those who uh, came to the knowledge of Christ. And then throughout the writings of the Apostle John, born of God, that phrase occurs over and over and over again. And it is a deeply feminine image. I'll just point out one more. Um, and I could have pulled out some quotes from these writings, but uh, it's... Uh, compelling to me, one of the threads of thought in the earliest centuries of the church by the earliest theologians of the church is that they saw the cross of Christ like the labor of God, that, that the cross of Christ can be seen as God in labor giving birth to the church, a new society of people who now share the DNA of God. Isn't that a beautiful thought? In the cross of Christ, there is water, there is blood, there is agony, like God is, give, like God is in labor, experiencing the agony of labor in order to give birth to the church. It's really a beautiful thought um, and certainly, obviously, deeply feminine conception of God and his work in Christ. Now, that's just a quick 
tour, a quick survey, bouncing, 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 of course. Um, but, and there's more where that came from. Uh, but even that much raises a couple of questions, and that, I think, is how I'd like to conclude today. Um, a couple of questions. The first question would be this. Uh, considering, considering the, the very gender-diverse witness of Scripture, actually the witness of Scripture is diversified in terms of its gendered reference to God, including reference to God, which is without gender. Um, so considering all this gender-balanced witness in Scripture, um, why should we refer to God as Father? It's, it's a legitimate question. And I want to say a couple of things about that. Um, and the first is really to kind of acknowledge the, uh, the sentiment of the question. That's the first thing I want to do. Um, and, and I'll just say that I, I think we could kind of try to squish it together like this, that, that God is the Father with a mother's heart. God is the Father with the heart of a mother. God is both creator and savior, as well as caregiver, sustainer, nurturer, qualities that are typically associated with the feminine. Um, God is the spirit creator who birthed us into existence and who continues to nurture us and sustain us. And so I want to begin by acknowledging the sentiment behind um, the question. And I know that some folks have taken all these observations uh, and have seen all this and, and decided they just want to go all the way and begin to refer to God as mother um, or God as the divine feminine or some variation of that. And again, I want to preface my remarks by saying I'm sympathetic to that thinking in the sense of, hey, we've gone through, you know, let's say whatever, pick a, pick a time window, 2,000 years of absolutely abusive theology um, against women. And so uh, this overcooked, male-dominated theology. And so now we're going to go the other direction. And I just want to say, having expressed as much sympathy as I can for the sentiment, I don't think the answer is to swing the pendulum to the other extreme. I am in favor of referring to God as Father, and here's why. Um, I acknowledge that the reference is thoroughly culturally conditioned, but that in itself is not a reason to disqualify that way of addressing God. Indeed, the, all of our options available to us are all culturally conditioned. That's the only options we have. Um, but for two reasons, I'm in favor of keeping it, referring to God as Father. Um, and the first is this. The admittedly culturally conditioned idea of Father is actually, when it's all said and done, a, a very good fit for how the Bible describes God on the whole. In other words, given that the idea of Father is indeed shaped by culture, you know, just, just kind of in your, sur in your mind do a quick survey of what Father means in most cultures, both today and throughout the ages. Again, in the, in the ideal scenario doesn't matter what culture you're talking about. There's, there are some generalities that are in common. The father is, in the ideal, the a provider, a protector, a caretaker, um, one who provides guidance and direction and cohesion to the family. I mean, there's, this is a list of attributes and qualities and characteristics that are, again, are shared across human cultures and which fit with the, with the biblical presentation of who God is on the whole. And so, even though admittedly the metaphor is culturally conditioned, it still remains a very, very good fit. Um, the second thing I want to say is this. Um, I think that the continued practice of referring to God as Father can actually help to heal our wounds from, well, broken Father experiences. Right, so here what I'm trying to say is we can actually approach the question from the other end. In other words, it is true that some people struggle with referring to God as Father because of painful, broken human experience with their own human fathers. 
But isn't it true that we also have to acknowledge that it's at least possible, and I would say more than at least possible, but I'm trying to understate, it's at least possible that through a process of spiritual formation, by years, year after year after year, referring to God as Father, and then continually understanding through the knowledge of God what Father actually means through that process of spiritual formation, isn't it equally possible that maintaining the reference to God as Father can serve in I'm saying this gently, but I know this is actually true in the lives of millions of believers, that this practice can actually heal our own souls for what it means to be a father. And I'm speaking right now as a father. I'm telling you, I'm a better father because I've over the years, I've come slowly and slowly and slowly, but coming to know what a real father is through identifying God as father, right? And the same thing can be said about a person who struggles deeply from, from the woundedness of a father, from a human father, that coming to know God, this, this, what I'm finding in my creator, in my heavenly father, this is what father actually means, and there's healing in that process. And so, for those two reasons, I say we keep it. Uh, here's a second question. Given, given all of this um, gender-balanced material in Scripture with reference to the divine, it's a legitimate question that someone could ask, why was Jesus male? If God, in reality, is beyond gender, then why was Jesus male? <laughs> it's a good question. And I think there it's instructive to at least try to give an answer. So I'm going to try to give you my answer. Okay, let's start at the very center, at the very core, uh, and lay out on the table to, to start with that Jesus came to reveal God. Jesus, Jesus came as the full self-revelation of God, right? Okay, so now think about this. Many common ideas about God, both in Jesus' time and place and in ours as well, um, have to do with images of power, uh, that God is a judge, God's authority, God as king, uh, these kinds of things. Ideas and images that are typically, right, associated with the masculine. Okay. But Jesus comes along and he reveals who God is and, and this, I'm going to say the central revelation of God in and through Christ is, yeah, 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 yeah. But here's true power. True power is in laying power down. Here's true greatness by seeking to be the servant of all. Here's, here's, what, here's, here's who God really is. He is a life laid down, a life poured out, this self-emptying. That's what Paul would call later the kenosis, the self-emptying, self-sacrificing, self-denying love of God. This is who God really is. That's who Jesus will reveal God to be. So, think about it. In first century Palestine, females had no power, no status, no standing, culturally speaking. Males had all the status, all the standing, all the power, right? And so for Jesus, as a male, a Palestinian male, for Jesus to say, hey, here's what true power is. True power is in laying down one's power. True power is in lay down the sword, lay down your life, give your life as a ransom. Okay, so Jesus says that, and it's like you hear that, and you try to put yourself in their sandals, and you say, okay, that's, that's got some resonance. But imagine if a first century Palestinian woman had come along and say, hey, everybody, here's what God is really like. You serve everybody. You lay your life down. You put your sword down. Well, you never had a sword in the first place, woman. And by the way, while you're busy serving, why don't you just continue to serve? I got some other ideas about how you can serve me, right? It wouldn't have resonated for the full self-revelation of God just from a cultural um, standpoint. And the second thing is this. Um, as a male, Jesus actually helps us to see God as more than male. And we've already talked about some examples. Power is service. Um, the reference to I want to gather you up like my chicks and so on. Okay, I admit those are just the 
scratching the surface of the questions um, that would come from this, but at least um, that's, those are, that's a starting point for at least some of the questions. Okay, so last thing, um, I just have a couple of now what kind of kind of thoughts. Uh, I want to say, if you are a female, for what it's worth, I want to say that I'm I'm profoundly sorry for the way that the church has denigrated you um, to second-class status. It should never have happened. It didn't come from the heart of God. It didn't come from any revelation of truth. It is a mistake and always has been. You are and you always have been in the image of God, called by God, gifted by God, called to lead, called to serve, called to teach, gifted by the Holy Spirit in every way that any man has ever or ever will be. I don't know how many words to use to say how profoundly sorry I am for how you've been treated by the church. And also, you have to know um, that the way that women have been treated, not just within the church, but in society as a whole, has in part to do with the way that the church has affirmed cultural norms, um, certainly in America, but even around the world, by denigrating, relegating women to some sort of second-class citizenship. It should never have happened. Um, it is and always has been a mistake. And so the first thing I want to say to you is, for what it's worth, I'm deeply, deeply sorry. The second thing I want to say to you is, uh, go for it. Lead, speak, teach, guide. Um, uh, be who you're called to be. You are gifted by God with gifts to lead. You know, I was thinking about this, and um, most of you know this, but a considerable part of my spiritual background is in uh, Pentecostal and charismatic circles. And I have a theory, um, take it or leave it, but I have a theory that for, for someone who, who is familiar with that environment, this conversation I don't th I'm not saying it makes this conversation easy, but I think it makes it easier because in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, the emphasis is placed upon the real-time gifting and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so if a human being has received a gift from God to lead, then what the leadership's response to that is, okay, then lead. <laughs> and if that human being is female, that's, that's beside the point. We have, we have a gift from the Holy Spirit to a human being who is gifted to lead, to teach, to pastor, to guide, to whatever it is. And so the posture in a spirit-saturated environment is, the posture is, well, if that's what the Spirit has done, is doing in this human being's life, then who are we to, to say otherwise, right? Now, some people are going to say, well, no, 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 you got the Word of God, you got to do the Word of God. Listen, I'm just sorry to tell you, but the history of the church, do you read the book of Acts? That's a group of people who saw something that the Spirit of God was doing, which the Spirit of God was not allowed to do, according to their reading of their own texts. That's the story of the Apostle Paul, that God is doing what God is not permitted to do. He is sweeping up the Gentiles, pouring his Spirit out upon the Gentiles, and now we've got to go back and reread our text to accommodate what the Spirit is actually doing. See what I'm saying? That's our heritage. That's our story. That's who we are. That's how we got here, right? And so I'm saying that a large part of my own history is in charismatic and Pentecostal circles, is, well, it, the Holy Spirit has permission to give anyone he wants to, regardless of their gender, any gift he wants to. And so when he gifts a person to lead, it, 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 their gender is immaterial. Our job is to get behind what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of this person, right? So I'm just saying, I think that, that this conversation takes on additional clarity 
when you, when you appreciate um, that element. So, if you're female, A, I'm sorry. B, don't hold back. Um, if you are a male, um, I, you know, my word to you is uh, don't just tolerate female leadership, inspiration, guidance, coaching, whatever. Uh, encourage it. Right? Encourage the women in your life um, to be exactly who they're called to be, even when and if that includes leadership. Encourage it. Crave it. Um, if you are a Christian, um, I just want you to know that this, this, um, I got to say it, what I want to say is, if you're a Christian, I want you to know that this is normative. What you've experienced is the aberration. What you've experienced in terms of stratifying first class and second class citizens based on gender, that's the broken. Um, this, uh, male and female created in, in, in the image of God as first class, full class citizens, uh, this is the norm. And so, welcome to normal, right? Um, and, and I guess I would say, only in the fourth category, if you're not a Christian, um, I would say again in two parts, to the extent that you may have looked from the outside and looked in and seen a gender-stratified um, institution, I just want you to know that we know that was never right. Um, and we're longing for something better. Many of us, many, many, many of us are longing for something better. So amen. Amen. Now's the time where I would love to pour the coffee and have a talk, right? But uh, hopefully we can do that by various means. Uh, so shall we pray? And we'll conclude.